We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. They call you the grill master. You've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop. And as you lift that first forkful to your mouth, you savor the moment. To get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, like the 2019 C-Class Sedan and GLC SUV, the perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, now serving limited-time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. You are listening to the Tuesday, November 28th edition of Road of His Radio. I'm Pat Corain on Twitter, at Pat Corain. And with me this week will be Sean Siegel on Twitter, at FF underscore Contrarian. And Josh, ADHD, on Twitter, at Fantasy ADHD. Great guest, great interview. Really looking forward to this show. Before we get into it, just wanted to remind you that you can get a listeners-only 30% discount to a Road of His NFL Pass through the NFL Podcast homepage, roadofhis.com slash podcast. That subscription will give you unlimited access to all of our premium NFL content, and it'll also help support the podcast. You can also help support the pod by subscribing to and rating the Road of His Radio channel on iTunes, and you can always contact us via Twitter, at Road of His Radio, or email roadofhisradio at gmail.com. All right, let's get into our interview with Josh ADHD on Twitter at FantasyADHD. Please welcome to the show, Josh ADHD. You can follow on Twitter at Fantasy ADHD. He's a contributor to Roto Grinders and Roto Viz, and he's uh, behind the scenes working, creating all of these fantastic apps that we have at Roto Viz and also that you can find at Roto Grinders. Josh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to be back on the Viz on Roto Viz Radio. I'm I'm excited, ready to go. 
Awesome. And let's start with the apps. Um, you're known throughout the community for a variety of groundbreaking apps. Um, your ADP apps are a community favorite. Uh, were there any insights from off-season ADP movement that you think are especially relevant in the context of what we've seen on the field this season? Really, the the biggest takeaway I have, and it's probably something that I should have taken away from from playing fantasy football. You know, I should have gotten this ten years ago. Is that during the offseason we really don't know anything. We don't know what we think we know. And you know, going into the next offseason, I know personally I'm going to take a step back and assess what I think I know and do the best I can to kind of cross that stuff off of my list and pretend I don't know it anymore because I think I'll make better informed decisions without assumption heading into the off season. Uh, the second thing I, that I find is that at least me personally, I, that I didn't spread my exposure out across more players. I, I had a pretty tight dispersal or dispersion among, among my player pool this year. And I'm paying the price for it a little bit because of some bad luck injuries, whatnot. So I think it, for players, especially guys that have that play a lot of volume during the off season, I, I would try to get more exposure to, to smaller percentages of players and try to spread your chips across the table a bit more. Now, obviously there's places to plant your flag and I think that's all fine and good. I'm going to plant plenty of flags myself, but at the same time, I think it, it, it you'll benefit if you're a bit contrarian with your flags and you take the opposite side for a small percentage, you hedge your bet, right? And I think you'll, your, your teams will be much more robust through the season in a best ball format where teams need to be robust to some degree in order to win. And then the third thing for me is that, you know, and this kind of dovetails into the last point, is that we should roster players that we think are bad players. And the reason I say that is, um, and this kind of alludes also back to number point one that we don't know anything, is that players that we think are bad may not necessarily be bad players. They may be good players in a bad situation. And so guys I'm thinking about are DeAndre Hopkins, who we see, you know, if you feed a guy enough target volume, a good wide receiver with a bad quarterback can actually be a very productive player. And on the running back side of things, I think Todd Gurley is the case in point poster boy this year for a player that people assumed was bad because he played in a bad offense and he didn't excel in a bad offense as some running backs have done in the past, where we get in a situation where you have a sharp coach that's a forward thinker, innovative guy, and puts a player in high leverage situations where he wins very frequently. You can take, I mean, you could turn Todd Gurley into an RB1 really quick. And he's been, you know, he was considered a bad player and, and a lot of folks wouldn't draft him because they thought that. So I think there's some benefit to drafting players that you think are bad, draft players that you're not comfortable with at some percentage, maybe let's say 15 to 20 percent of your of your leagues. That way, you know, and if those players do hit, if their situation turns around, whatever, you're the beneficiary, right? You don't miss out on it completely. Josh, in leagues, obviously knowing what a player's ADP is, is hugely valuable. If you've got a list of targets, you want to take them, make sure you get them, but not ever pay any more than you have to. So just having that information is hugely valuable. Going beyond that, how do you use the ADP information and your apps in your own leagues? Do you like to buy falling players? Uh, when you see a player's price start to rise, do you take that as a sign that, okay, the, the opportunity based on what we know must be uh, really improving. I should try and get in before it gets too expensive. Or are you actually trying to bet against ADP? You know, I, I do a, I do a bit of both, and it, it depends on the player and the situation and kind of how I feel about it. So there are, 
I, I guess so far as ADP is considered in general, I tend to take players where I feel they belong, regardless of what ADP says they were, where ADP says that they should be taken. And the reason I do that is, you know, I, I feel like, and I think any, any volume player, any longtime player does is they have an idea where players should be drafted and they're willing to let the crowd kind of do their own thing. And they'll take players where either they feel they belong, whether that's drafting high or drafting low, or in some cases, you know, you follow the crowd because that gives you very good value on a player. And you know that you can kind of load up on, let's say, high upside players and pay a discount price on two or three of them. So I think that's important. And that's how I use ADP and my ADP apps in my best ball leagues is I just try to leverage the crowd information for my benefit as best as I can. But I also have to pick my spots where if I, there's a player I feel strongly about and I know the crowd also feels strongly about, it, it makes some sense to go ahead and take that player ahead of time at the front end of his draft distribution to guarantee that you'll have that player. And granted, you may end up skewing ADP to some degree because of that, but at the end of the day, you get the guy that you feel at, at a fair value and you should benefit from that in the long run. So, you know, you mentioned play, watching players start to rise or start to fall because of the crowd sentiment. So what I typically do there is I, I ignore it until I have enough information I'm comfortable with that movement and following that movement. And typically for me, that's not going to be until August when training camp is rolling and we actually see these guys in some, you know, kind of somewhat live fire situations in the games, in the preseason games. And, you know, kind of a, a really good illustration of that was um, Dalvin Cook. So once Dalvin Cook assumed that starter role in Minnesota, we saw it pretty, qu pretty quickly in preseason games that he was going to be the guy. I mean, his ADP quickly spiked. You know, it jumped from fifth round to third round to second round. And if you weren't really quick on the front end of that, trying to get him in the fifth and fourth round right before that spike happened, he lost out. Now, granted, you know, we lost him to injury this year, but that's just that's variance. That's bad luck. And you can't use that to justify not drafting a guy ahead of his, let's say, ahead of his ADP search. So I think, um, you know, there's some value to doing your own thing and there's some value to kind of watching the crowd and, and having a good having a good idea when to get ahead of them and when to get behind them. I mean, in a, in a, in a sense, this is really just we're, we're investing in a market, right? This is a lot like financial investing, except we're doing it with football players and, and situations. And so, you know, obviously there's, there's benefit to following your own wisdom and there's benefit to following the crowd at some points. You mentioned Todd Gurley as a player who had a big uh, change in perception and obviously change in value. Um, this is also the week where a lot of people will sort of, uh, this is the final week for them for 2017. They'll be eliminated this week. And, and as people sort of lick their wounds, one of the most fun things is to think in terms of, okay, this is a guy that I really want next year. You, you talked in the beginning about sort of spreading out your ownership, but is there a player who jumps out to you right now that, you know, you'd like to have as maybe your highest exposure player in early 2018 MFL 10s? Yeah, I, you know, the, the player I'm probably looking at at this point that that I want to exploit is I, I'm going to look for wide receivers that are a bit crestfallen this season. And so Allen Robinson is probably going to be a guy I look at very strongly again. I will look at Stefan Diggs as well, just because he's sort of become second fiddle to Adam Thielen this year, just the way that things have fallen. Um, so I'll probably get try to leverage Stefan Diggs even more strongly this season, since I think Thielen will be the higher, the, probably the higher ADP guy across the off season um, and see if I can think of anybody else offhand. You know, I think there'll probably be some other value buying opportunities at running back position. And, you know, Mark Ingram may end up being one of those players again, just because 
Alvin Kamara has been so explosive and flashy that he will be the preferred option in a New Orleans backfield, assuming both players are still there next season. So, I mean, there are some real gems out there right now that are guys that are good players in good situations that if those, let's say, if those factors stay stagnant or stay, you know, let's say the same going into next season, then there are going to be fantastic buying opportunities there. And we just have to remember what happened before this season and remember the long, let's say, the, the long view of what these players can do. Awesome. And yeah, you mentioned uh, right before we started here that we're about eight weeks away from uh, best ball season, best ball draft season starting up. So as crazy as that seems, uh, you know, as the fantasy playoffs haven't even started in some leagues, uh, that that's where we're at. So um, a lot more exciting stuff to come there. Uh, I should also mention the um, your site, fantasyadhd.com, where you can find some of these apps. So a uh, lot of lot of fun stuff coming best ball wise, but let's transition into uh, what what happened just this past week. And you know what? Let's start with the situation you just brought up: the Vikings wide receiver situation. Um, Adam Thielen on Thanksgiving became the second wide receiver this season to crack a thousand yards. Um, he also recorded double digit targets for the fifth time in six weeks. Uh, Stephon Diggs, meanwhile. Looked like he was back to full health. He matched Thielen in snaps, He saw, but he just saw seven targets to Thielen's 11. Uh, that was Diggs' sixth straight game with less than 10 targets. Is this a case where Thielen was able to develop chemistry with Keenum while Diggs was out of the lineup, or has Thielen truly supplanted Diggs as the number one wide receiver in this offense? It sounds like you don't think so because you're going to be leveraging Diggs this offseason, but curious on your thoughts there. You know, I think Minnesota is in a really unique situation in that they have two true number one wide receivers, this is my opinion, on their roster that, I, in my opinion, they could really use interchangeably however they please. They choose not to do that, but they certainly could um, if, they, if they wanted to go that way. I don't think Thielen has necessarily supplanted Diggs in the offense. I think he benefits from being closer to the quarterback and running routes that probably get him more open more quickly so that a developing quarterback like Case Keenum, uh, he's probably looking for the first guy that's open. And, and typically, I think that will be Thielen, unless they scheme digs on a slant or some other really quick developing route. So to me, I don't think it's really supplanted so far, so much as just, I mean, he's he's available. And available really is a quarterback's best friend in a lot of cases. So, I, you know, I, if, the, if the roles were switched, let's say Diggs plays the slot more frequently and they put Thielen at the flank, I think we're just talking about this in a completely different way. I think we're talking about Diggs being the, you know, the far and away number one receiver and Thielen is, is picking up scraps. So, you know, again, I think this is a situation to monitor in the off season. And, you know, we also may be talking about this completely differently if Teddy Bridgewater is playing quarterback. We noticed that Teddy Bridgewater developed a really good chemistry with Diggs before both guys really got injured. Let's say even back to late 2015 when they were starting to develop things together and, early, and, you know, obviously we've lost Bridgewater all of 16. We didn't get to see how that how that would continue to develop. But if Bridgewater's the quarterback, let's say, later this season, we may be talking about this completely opposite way. Looking at the wide receivers, over the last couple of weeks, we've focused on the show about how wide receiver scoring is down. And then this past weekend was just like one of those great weeks from 2013, 2014, 2015, where we saw Julio go for 10, 253, and 2. Antonio Brown 10 169 and 2, Keenan Allen 11 172 and 1. Uh, Robbie Anderson got in the act with a massive game. Does this change your perception of this season and even what the trends might be because 
just this one week really balanced out the top wide receivers back in relation with the top running backs this this year and and also with the air yards apps that you do the quarterback upside work that you do you've got a lot of uh, experience looking at what the passing game is going to look like each week yeah it's nice to see some of these wide receivers come back in line with where we expected them to be and I don't know if that is I'm not sure what that's a function of obviously I think it's a multivariate function you know but is that defense is getting tired and worn down is it offense is kind of starting to figure things out with some new offensive coordinators on hand, maybe some injuries on the offense that change things around. It seems like it's taken a lot longer this season for offenses to sort of understand who they are, find out what they're best at doing, and then implement that. And that may be a result of the shorter preseason. That may be a result of injuries. I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like offenses that kind of figure things out, let's say six weeks into the year, in the years past, it's now it's taken 11 weeks for some of these guys to figure out how to find the number one receiver and target him 15 times a game and figure out how to get him in the end zone. So it's, it's interesting that wide receiver scoring has been down so much this year. It's been a head scratcher for me. I cannot figure out why other than, you know, it's just, this is a, a low event sport that we follow and we're on the bad side of variance until now. I'm hoping that some of these receivers, especially Julio Jones, Keelan, Keenan Allen, and a couple of other guys that have broken out over the last few weeks, finally, I hope it's more consistent going forward. I hope we see these guys consistently going for, you know, seven, eight catches, 100 yards, 100 plus yards and getting in the end zone. You know, and there's one wide receiver. We're still waiting for his breakout game. And that's Michael Thomas. You know, he has only scored two touchdowns this season. He's had very consistent work, very consistent yardage, but he just hasn't scored touchdowns. And I'm waiting for him to have that Keenan Allen, Julio Jones week where he gets in the box two times. And, you know, goes for, let's say, 40 DraftKings points. That would be fantastic. I've been chasing him enough. I'm ready for it. Um, so w- with regards for with regards to the, how I use the Air Yards apps on my site with that, I mean, it's I, I haven't necessarily seen any patterns develop yet. All I try to do on, on a week to week basis is overlay an offense and a defense and see where the offense can leverage themselves against the defense. And then I have to ask myself the question, can the coaches figure this out too? And if they can, will they actually do it? So it's it's a kind of a guessing game every week, but I will say this, being able to overlay an offense and a defense in a very quick visual has given me a lot of advantage in, in these games over the last, let's say, year and a half when I've really started doing it seriously. And it gives me a very quick and clear picture about where offenses can win versus what it did before, which was really just stick my thumb in the air and guess. You mentioned the Saints, and I wanted to go back to that sort of quickly, where they've been very run-heavy, especially the last month or so, and with great success. But it seems like this sets them up for potential failure. We saw last week where they get behind to another good team, and they, they didn't exactly seem like they knew what to do. Wouldn't it be better for them to emulate more their own 2009 Super Bowl champion team, sort of the offensive style that the Patriots use to great effect every year, than perhaps trying to emulate uh, a much weaker team like last year's Dallas Cowboys? Yeah, I think there is some benefit to that. And what we don't know is what's what the thinking is in their room, right, With between Sean Payton and, and his staff. That may be their plan. I mean, they, they could come out this week and start spooling up to 40 or 45 pass attempts a game. You know, I, my only thinking at this point is they realize that Drew Brees is 38 years old, and they realize also that they have an opportunity to make a very deep playoff run 
and it's in their best interest to preserve his arm and his shoulder as long as they can this season before they have to turn it loose because they, I, I think they realize that they will have to turn it loose. I mean, they, they almost had to turn it loose last week. And the only problem was they only got to run 49 plays because the Rams simply, they just kept them off the field. But I, I, Peyton's a smart guy. I think he realizes they will have to throw at some point and they're going to have to throw to stay ahead of their, of, of opponents that are much better than the opponents they face so far this season. Um, it's interesting that they haven't tried to, let's say, work work up that volume yet, but I think it's coming. Is there any concern that with the loss of players like Jimmy Graham several years ago and Brandon Cooks after last year, that they're actually just not that talented at the receiving positions? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, you've seen what, that Ted Ginn this year, they turned him into a, you know, a pretty viable wide receiver too. And what's interesting to me is they're using him very, very close to the line of scrimmage, whereas every place and every stop that he's been before, he's been featured as a deep guy only. And I, I think, I, I know that I, again, I'll flash back to we don't know what we don't know going into the season and that everyone thought Ted Ginn was going to be Devery Henderson in New Orleans and is anything but. He's just become this – he's almost been like Jarvis Landry in New Orleans being targeted very close to the line of scrimmage, and they're letting him use his athletic ability to create yardage down the field. And – I it's pretty refreshing to see an offense do that with a player, but to go back to your, to your bigger, to your bigger point that maybe their receiving talent just isn't that good. I wholeheartedly believe that. I mean, Kobe Fleener has been just a huge bust there. He hasn't worked out the way that they had hoped. Uh, Obviously Willie Sneed, he's, he's pretty much persona non grata at this point. I don't know what his function is in the offense at all. You know, they, they do have Brandon Coleman. He's a big body guy but he doesn't appear to have seized any type of role. And, you know, they've, they've kind of really reined back their, their focus on the, in the passing game to Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, Mark Ingram, and Ted Ginn. And after that, it's like if you can't diversify your passing offense outside of those four players, I don't know how much success you can really have. You'll run into a defense that can cover those guys at some point, and I think they did that last weekend. And once that happens, what are you going to do? Joshua, you mentioned that, you know, Michael Thomas was the one wide receiver who we're really waiting for that big breakout for, but um, maybe it's sort of a a comment on the state of things that you didn't also mention Des Bryant. Um, He's, you know, obviously not had that breakout game either. In fact, he's he's failed to post even a single 100-yard game this season. He hasn't scored a touchdown since week seven. Um, And so I was looking at the Game Splits app today on Rotoviz, and uh, just checking out how Dez has been with Tony Romo uh, since since Dez kind of broke out in 2012 versus where he's been with Dak Prescott. Since 2012, he's had 50 games with Romo. He averaged 18 fantasy points per game. He's had 24 games now with Dak, uh, averaging less than 13 points per game now. Um, what do you make of this decline? You know, really, the the issue for me, and, and I may have told you this in Nashville, that I'm, I'm a reformed Cowboys fan. I, I know that team really well. I've watched them since I was a toddler from the late 70s. And the issue with Dallas is they are not creative offensively. They don't put their players in a position to succeed. They expect that execution will win out over talent any day. And so what happens with Des Bryant is he runs the same old routes, from the same old place every single snap, every single game, and defenses know what they're going to do. So all he can do 
to win a matchup is run his route better than anybody else and muscle somebody out of a pass. And it, in today's NFL, I mean, you can scheme a guy out of those advantages. And, you know, with Dez's apparent, I mean, it seems apparent that his, his physical skills, his physical dominance has degraded quite a little bit, I would say, over the past few years. I, I just don't see him being in any kind of situation where he can succeed. I, so I don't foresee a breakout for Des Bryant. I was hopeful going into the season that, you know, with with the skill set that Dak Prescott offers the offense with his mobility, that they would try to scheme a little bit more, let's say, a flexible offense, something a little more spread out, something that has a little more creativity to it. And they've done anything but. I mean, they, they've really – I almost feel like they've regressed schematically this season. And Dez has not benefited at all. I mean, Dez cannot win one-on-one matchups – in the open field like he used to. I mean, he's still very, very dominant in the red zone, but the issue is you got to get to the red zone first. And if you can't get to the red zone, how can you have him leverage his physical gifts? So I'd, I have a hard time seeing Dallas elevating their offense over the last part of the season unless they completely change how they think about what they do on offense. Should we be concerned about that in the context of Ezekiel Elliott? I don't think there's any question at this point about his talent or that if you can get him on your fantasy team, you want him. It's much more about price going into the season, you know, exempting concerns about the suspension, which obviously came to fruition. Uh, But aside from that, there's this idea that he, he has this amazing rookie season scores, tons of points. uh, And a secondary breakout is potentially on the horizon where sort of a, a drop back is, is also, you know, one of the, one of the possible scenarios with the offense struggling, with the offensive line not looking quite as good, and then the scheme concerns that you mentioned, is he someone to perhaps sell because you'll be able to get more from him now, even suspended, than you know you will six months, eight months from now? Yeah, I think that's certainly worth a look because you know we we don't know what the complexion of this team will be going into next season. I have a feeling they will retain their entire coaching staff because they they really don't like to shake things up. And Jerry Jones has mentioned in the past, I, I think it was after he fired Chan Gailey, that he made a premature decision. He, he kind of, it was reactionary, he felt, and that he would not do that again. So I feel like Jason Garrett and Brad Childress will be given more opportunity there in Dallas uh, to, to fix things. So for me, I, I, I kind of agree with your point that if you can sell Ezekiel Elliott now, and granted, I think he still has a sexiness about him from a football perspective. And I think players will yearn kind of nostalgically for what he offered the offense in his suspension in exile. And I think you can get a lot for him right now. I think you should try to leverage it as much as possible. Obviously, you will have to designate the right trade target in your league as someone that's forward looking and has enough capital to trade for Ezekiel Elliott that will also benefit you coming back. I mean, you're not looking for a guy that's playing in his fantasy championship that's looking to give you pennies on the dollar for a high-priced talent, you know, a, a, a hopeful guy that you can rent for one game if you make your final. So obviously it's it's somebody that's going to play for next year. If you're playing for next year, even if you're playing for a championship this year, that that can make you a mutually beneficial trade. Yeah, that's uh that's interesting about Jerry Jones. I hadn't heard I hadn't heard that in that kind of um helps explain why Jason Garrett's been there so long already in in my view but um got want to move over to another running back here um kind of mentioned him a little bit in passing Alvin Kamara uh 2 weeks ago Sean had his uh re-rankings of the 
2017 rookie class. And Alvin Kamara at that time was coming off 58 points over his last two weeks. In the two weeks since Sean published that article where he had Kamara second in the 2017 class, um, Kamara has now gone another 60-plus points uh, over those two weeks. So he's uh, he's going... He's gone up for uh, over 118 PPR points just over the last four weeks, uh, which would make him a top 20 running back on the season just based on what he's done over the last four weeks. He's also now passed Kareem Hunt as the top-scoring rookie running back. How high do you think is too high to value Alvin Kamara in Dynasty? And, you know, I think, I think Sean, where you have him right now as RB2, I think that's fair. You know, I, if I have Kamara as a, as a dynasty player on my rosters going into this offseason, I'm looking to sell him because I don't think his value will ever get higher than it is right now. In fact, I may be willing to sell him right now if I can get the right pieces back. Just because he's been on so he's been on such a high side of variance, in my opinion, for his expected point production. I mean, he's completely blown that out of the water. And I was talking with someone about this last night that he may be, you know, like a, a six or seven sigma outcome at this point with his volume, what he's done with it from a scoring perspective. I mean, it is just astronomical production. And I, the only guy I can compare it to him at this point is Anton Smith from a couple years back, a guy that seemingly scored a 70 yard touchdown every time he touched the ball for the Falcons. And, you know, Kamara's doing that times 10. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's literally unbelievable to me that, that he's able to produce at such a high clip and to the point where I want to leverage that as soon as I can and, and get everything back that I possibly can uh, in return. I think RB2 is pretty fair if we assume that the situation in New Orleans stays the same. Uh, Sean, I'd be interested to know who number one is. I'm guessing it's Fournette, but I may be incorrect on that. Well, I had Christian McCaffrey at number one. And if I – the next article coming out will probably have Kamara at number one. The the focus there, I think, is just the extreme value of – having those pass catching running backs. And, and obviously both of those guys, we would like to see them develop as runners. You mentioned that Kamara is scoring on virtually every touch, which that part of it isn't sustainable, but you're still going to have a pretty solid expected points profile if you get the kinds of touches that he's getting. So even once he backs off, I think he'll be scoring like crazy. One of the things I was thinking about was the game last night with Le'Veon Bell, where he has a 30-point fantasy game and didn't do anything that really stood out. Now, anytime that you have almost 200 total yards, that that's a very good game. But if you just were sort of casually watching the game, you wouldn't have seen anything to be like, oh, you know, Le'Veon Bell is scoring 30 points. But when you when you get those kinds of touches and you get that many passing touches, it just gives you such a high floor. And when you contrast McCaffrey to Fournette, uh, I, I think one of those guys is basically at his floor and the other player we saw close to his ceiling early on. And now I'm more concerned about his current production being more what we can expect going forward because it's just so hard to sustain production that really has to come from the running game and has to come from your offense creating those goal line situations, which especially in Jacksonville, I think is tricky. Contrast what those guys are doing with the next person we, we were thinking in terms of was Kareem Hunt. The Chiefs started 5-0. and They looked amazing. Alex Smith supposedly is a completely new player because he's being pushed by uh, this freakishly talented rookie. And 
driving down the field, highest scoring team at football, and then things have just collapsed. And I don't think anybody thought that Alex Smith was going to be able to sustain that or that somehow, you know, now in his 30s that he was going to be a completely new player. But the crash has been a little bit staggering. And Hunt last week with 17 yards on, you know, 17 rushing yards, nine receiving yards. And especially after we saw what the Saints did to Buffalo a couple of weeks ago, it just seems crazy. What do you make of what Kansas City is doing now? What changes do you think they should make going forward? You know, I, I took a look at them today from a – I looked at their passing game and tried to figure out, I want to say, what's gone wrong. Like, what, what's gone sour in that offense that has completely transformed it over the last month? And the only thing I can discern, at least from Air Yards data, is that the offensive line is either not doing their job or Alex Smith does not trust his protection enough to let plays develop anymore. So one of the big key factors that stuck out for me, and, and this is with a lot of quarterbacks, is what does their what does their aerial profile look like on the left side of the formation, which is typically the quarterback's backside where the where the left tackle is blocking. And over the past or I would say over the first, I think, eight games of the season when when Kansas City was blowing and going, you know, Alex Smith's A dot to the left side was well over eight. And over the past four games, or actually I think over the past three games since they started, let's say, losing and he started throwing interceptions, um, the A dot on the left side has shrunken down to just over five. So that's a pretty dramatic drop off. We're talking about three yards per target that Alex Smith has dropped off on his blindside targets. To me, that's that indicates that the protection either is not good or he has regressed back into what we, you know, his the archetype that we had kind of slotted it in, into, which is just this, you know, kind of weak armed, scared, you know, happy footed passer that's willing to dump it off to the first thing he sees while routes are developing downfield. I, I think that part of that is because the running game was stuffed for a few consecutive weeks. And I don't know whether that's an offensive line issue. I don't know if that's Kareem Hunt not running in the right spot. I don't know if that's because they don't have a threat of a deep passing game anymore. I mean, it could be a confluence of factors that are feeding off one another. They could have this terrible uh, feedback loop in their offense where all the factors feed into each other and just totally snowball the whole thing, the whole thing to where they can't move the ball anymore. And that appears to be where they are right now. So I don't know if they can necessarily recover in time. Do I think they'll have a dead cat bounce? Well, I mean, they should have had it last week. Well, they should have had the dead cat bounce the week before that against the Giants. So if they can't do it against two of the weakest defenses, they will see this entire season. I'm not sure if they can do it at all. And that's that's really cool information. That's, I think, a great example of, of why they should check out the site. You mentioned that in terms of depth of target to the left side, in terms of Smith. Uh, is there anything further that you could break down for us there in terms of the receivers? Is, is there a factor of Albert Wilson missing some games? How does this relate to Travis Kelsey? Yeah, so that's um, it, it's pretty interesting. I haven't actually I haven't gotten down that deep in the receivers to see you know who's missing time and how that may affect things. I think, and that's one of the neat things that that my Air Yards app does offer is the ability to split receivers in an offense in or out visually to see you know what's their effect on the overall passing game. So it would be interesting to go back and, and look at the last few weeks and you know, cut Albert Wilson in and cut Albert Wilson out to see how it stacks up, what the what the productivity looks like. And you may very well be onto something. I mean, maybe Albert Wilson is the key cog in this whole offense. And when he's not there, then they really can't do much without it. That'd be interesting to find out. The one thing I did notice, and I watched some of the game uh, yesterday, 
was that there are receivers running wide open down the field. And this is something that we that we saw also last year. And I felt was pretty highly publicized on Twitter. You know, you see Tyreek Hill running, you know, 40 yards downfield, like three or four yards clear of his of his defender. And Alex Smith is, you know, his vision cone is eight yards away and right in front of him. And he's just not even looking there. And I saw that yesterday, especially with Travis Kelsey, who, you know, tragically only saw three targets yesterday. Somehow he's wide open on almost every play and he's wide open 15 to 20 yards down the field where they're asking him to run. And they're just simply they're just not throwing him the ball. So the only way I know for Kansas City to change to change what's going on there is to do is to make a quarterback change and get somebody in there that has like, let's say, fresh eyes, fresh perspective, maybe hasn't been tainted by years in the NFL and, and goes back into, you know, let's say their instinctual habits, you know, maybe Mahomes can can jumpstart that thing. But for all for all intents and purposes, it appears that Andy Reid is he's committed to Alex Smith. He's not going to remove him. I, and I, the only way I could see Mahomes coming in right now is through injury. We talked a little bit about McCaffrey, Kamara, Fournette, how their profiles compare and contrast. Kareem Hunt, obviously a sensation at the beginning. We knew those big plays were not sustainable, but that didn't mean that he couldn't still be, you know, a, a top five uh, clear running back one. How, how do you see him going forward? Is this the time to buy him? Is his opportunity profile in the future one that you're trying to purchase? I, I'm a little bit concerned that they have effectively removed him from the passing game, at least with respect to how they were using him at the beginning of the season. And that's not just the three down role that he's that he's somewhat lost to Charkandrick West, but also that I don't see the downfield targets that he was getting early in the season. You know, in the early early in the season, especially against New England and and then a couple of their their next opponents after that. I mean, they were running him downfield and targeting him on wheel routes, on circle routes where he could gain leverage on linebackers 15 to 20 yards downfield and really explode for a long play. They're not doing that anymore. He's not running those routes that I can tell. So and, until I can see some positive indication that his usage will change and they will start deploying him downfield or even targeting him more frequently in the offense, I don't know if he's necessarily a buy candidate for me. I think his price is still too high. Now, let's say we get later in the season and folks are getting really antsy because maybe they've lost their fantasy playoffs after hedging their hopes on him gaining that type of role in week 15 and week 16, then that might be the time to strike because the off season will probably be the best time to acquire him as a, um, a post hype sleeper. I can't remember who coined that term, but you know, as the, as the post hype sleeper, the, the player that, you know, obviously has had some of his shine taken off through one reason or another. I think that'll be the time to acquire him. I am hopeful for him, for him long-term. We've seen his athleticism at work and, if there's just a little bit of a culture change in Kansas City, I mean, he could certainly explode again and, and be a guy like Todd Gurley has been this year, a player that can get 350 touches and completely thrive in an offense. Josh, I want to circle back to um, to Alvin Kamara with the idea that you brought up of, of selling him. So, if you know, maybe the hunts, the time to buy Hunt is in this offseason. The time to sell Kamara might be right now um, just because he's been so productive running back three on the year now. Um, if somehow Kamara has not kind of carried you single-handedly to the playoffs in your dynasty league, what would you be looking to get back for him? I would have to think, like, if we were doing a startup right now, he seems like he'd be a, an early first – sorry, an early second startup pick. 
maybe even a late first round pick. Um, so like, what would you be looking to get back? Uh, just, just poking around on the, the current rankings at, at DLF, like how much would you have to add to get David Johnson? If you're a non-competing team, like, could you add your first and, and Kamara and, and try to steal David Johnson right now? Is that crazy? I, I almost, I don't know if you would have to add anything to get David Johnson for Alvin Kamara right now, to be honest. I mean, the, the big difference between the two obviously is, is volume, but we're, we're assuming that David Johnson gets that volume when he comes back. It's not guaranteed, especially after they added Adrian Peterson to that roster. So I'm not sure if, um, and granted, that's assuming Peterson plays next season or that they even bring David Johnson back this year. I would be hesitant to do anything but a one-for-one with Kamara and Johnson at this point. I wouldn't add anything. I think that would be overpaying for Johnson based on what Kamara offers. Now, in a startup, I think I think a high first is, is probably my starting point. I want to see where the other owner, what they're committed to, what they're willing to do to get Kamara. And, at, at, you know, that early second, late first, I think that's the right spot. Um I would probably look for, you know, obviously before this before this past week, before Julio's breakout, I might have asked for Julio Jones in exchange for Alvin Kamara just because of the the sentiment that had built up on Julio Jones over the past few weeks that, you know, just this isn't his year. Maybe this isn't his offense to be in. Maybe he needs to be somewhere else. Uh, I might look for a player like A.J. Green. You know, again, another player that's in a somewhat disadvantaged situation but something, a situation that could change relatively quickly in the offseason with one or maybe even two moves. So that's the kind of player I would be looking for for Kamara at this point. Sean, in the Rotovis Dynasty League, I believe you have Kamara. We're both in playoff contention. Um, yeah, you do have Kamara. We're both in playoff contention. So what would uh, what would I have to give you if, if you're going to sell him to me? Well, I would take David Johnson for him. I, I, I've been trying to trade for Kamara for the past month in all of my leagues and never gotten close. I, I tried to trade David Johnson to a team that is loaded for the future, not playing for this year, but absolutely loaded in the future for Kamara, Corey Coleman, and, and some top uh, Debbie pieces throwing in one of my own. And that, that trade offer obviously didn't, didn't gain any traction at all. So I think that those valuations that Josh is, is mentioning there are definitely what you're going to have to, what you're going to have to pay if you want to pick him up. Yeah, it's crazy to to say. I I would take David Johnson. <laughs> Things change a lot in uh just just a short twelve week period here. Um, all right, but let's move over to maybe another thing that's changing here. The number one wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers. Um, looking at Devontae Adams, kind of again his splits, the game splits app at, at Rotoviz is how I'm getting this. He's averaged fifteen four point four uh, PPR fantasy points with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, in the game and with Aaron Rodgers out he's basically the same dude 15.1 games 15.1 points over the last five games Um, Jordy Nelson meanwhile has averaged 18.9 points with Rodgers he's down to just 4.7 points per game over the last five Aaron Rodgers is coming back he might be back as soon as week 15 but should we take anything from this kind of crazy fall off that we've seen from Nelson while Adams has been rock steady I, I'm having a hard time dealing with this because I'm not sure what to think right now. You know, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting case study in the relationship of a battery. And when I say battery, I mean a quarterback wide receiver relationship. Um, you know, the battery typically comes from baseball between the pitcher and the catcher. I use in football quite a bit for 
for quarterback and their and and a receiver pairing. And to see Jordy Nelson basically be crestfallen without Aaron Rodgers, it, it's it's relatively, I mean, it's shocking, honestly. I mean, it, it changes my perception of Jordy Nelson as a player. And I hate that because Jordy Nelson has been such a phenomenal player for so long that I feel it's unfair to him to say that I think less of him now because Brett Hundley can't support him in an offense the way he supported or the way that Aaron Rodgers supports him. You know, does that just really, does that speak to Aaron Rodgers' greatness? And I think that's probably more the case than Jordy Nelson's ability. Um, and, and on the flip side of that, Devontae Adams still producing at such a high clip, no matter who the quarterback is. I, I think I think that speaks to his ability and his growth as a player that it doesn't matter who his quarterback is. He he makes the quarterback better. And I think that's something obviously that Aaron Rodgers probably noticed in Adams's development over the past few years is that, you know, Adams consistently, you know, he would get open. He makes tough catches and he works within the 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 confines of the offense. And those are meaningful things. And quarterbacks, once they develop that rapport with a, with a receiver, they will continue to go back to that every time. And, and we can go back and hearken to the, uh, the Case Keenum and Adam Thielen battery that we've seen really just thrive this year. And I think that's the same case where, you know, a, a player is so consistently open and, and maybe it, it just happens to be the right time, the right place so many plays in a row that, that, you know, chemistry is, it just happens. It's there. And I think Adams has that with Hunley. Obviously he has it with Rogers. So it's um, the, the, the dichotomy right now between Adams and Nelson is something I want to study more to find out why. That's interesting. I, I haven't lost any, any of my faith or respect in, in Jordy Nelson, but certainly my appreciation for Devonte Adams has has really skyrocketed. One of the things in in watching all the games last season is that Adams obviously had a had a good season statistically, but he didn't really seem to be open. He seemed to be one of those guys who didn't exactly separate, but because of quarterback greatness, uh, you know, Rodgers was able to, to throw it in there. And you know, anytime that you have Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, that you're going to have a, a very high number of total passing touchdowns to split. And so, if they split off in favor of your guy, you're you're going to come out with. Um, you know, at the very worst, probably a low end wide receiver one season. And to see Adams doing this this year, I've been sort of in some trade discussions with Mike Clay and the Pro Football Focus uh, and Friends Dynasty League that, that we started back five or six years ago. And uh, he he needs one receiver and, and Adams is, is the guy we've been talking about. Well, we just can't meet meet on price. And, and every year or every week that, that Adams continues to impress with Hundley, uh, it raises your appreciation for what he could do there. And if he ended up long-term on a different team than the Packers, certainly now I think you have to be much more enthusiastic that he certainly could survive with a different quarterback. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's probably something we should study more in wide receivers is the portability of their skill set. And, I mean, we, we see kind of a microcosm of that now with Adams, with different quarterbacks in his own offense. We see it with Larry Fitzgerald in Arizona, all the different quarterbacks he's had to play with and he consistently produces, obviously that speaks to his ability as, a, as an, you know, an all-time elite receiver. And maybe Adams is on that path. I mean, obviously he's still growing as a receiver. You mentioned his inability to separate last year and effectively his quarterback throwing him open on a lot of targets. You know, maybe, maybe the change this year is that Adams has learned to run his routes better. Maybe he is a little bit more open. Maybe he's better at contested catches and he has maybe let's say some of those 
intrinsic abilities that quarterbacks trust, uh, ability to win contested catches, you know, a, a just kind of a guy that just happens to be in his line of sight whenever he's needed. You know, th- those skills, I would say soft skills perhaps as a wide receiver, I don't know if we do a good job quantifying that. I don't know if we can quantify it. But those type of skills, I think, are portable from team to team and offense to offense and maybe something we need to learn how to track during a free agent process to know, you know, is this a good signing, is this a bad signing, and hopefully get us away from players like Kenny Britt, who I traded straight up for Devontae Adams this offseason. I acquired Britt for Adams thinking Adams was going to fall off and, and Britt was going to ascend. And, you know, clearly I was wrong about that. And I know why in hindsight now. But if I can identify that situation going forward, obviously I'm going to benefit from it because I won't make that move again. But at the same time, it also helped me identify, let's say, um, value picks in best ball drafts, value picks in dynasty drafts, players that have a portable skill set that can move to different offenses and really thrive. All right, we'll be back with more from Josh after this quick break. Fantasy football fans, listen up. If you love fantasy football, then you need to try my new favorite app, Draft. Here's how it works. You do a draft that lasts for just one week and there's no management. Just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. Draft even takes care of last minute injuries for you. Drafts start every couple minutes so you can join one right now. And the best part? You play for cold hard cash. Drafts start from just $1 so there's a draft for everyone. There's no salary caps so you play in real life snake drafts just like you would with your friends in a season long league. So come in, join me, draft against me on Draft Today. Download the app anytime. Just search Draft in your app store and join a game in minutes or play right from your computer on PlayDraft.com, whatever you want. For a limited time only, all new players get a free entry into a draft when you make your first deposit. But you have to use the promo code RVRADIO. That's right. Play a real money game for free just for using my promo code RVRADIO on your first deposit on Draft. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to PlayDraft.com and come play free with promo code RVRADIO. Moving over to tight end, uh, we kind of saw wide receiver uh, have a bit of a resurgence this past week, but elite tight end scoring is still down, up from where it was last year, but still down from its where it's been uh, from 2011 to, to 2015 um, over that time period we saw eight tight ends have at least 17 PPR points per game it's about one and a half per season um, but it looks like 2017 is going to be the second straight year without any tight end getting there what do you make about the downturn of tight end scoring it certainly could be variance uh, given that tight ends are even a more variable position than wide receiver but it's been two disappointing seasons here in a row. Uh, what do you make of that, Josh? Well, I think I, I'd like to see how the crowd reacts to this because I think in a lot of these situations, when they get a bad taste in their mouth, it's a really bad taste and they back away from the table quickly, which obviously presents a buying opportunity for those of us that are with the longer view in the room and willing to sustain some losses over the short term to benefit down the road. Um, the only, The only, let's say, film guy – thing I can come up with for why tight end scoring is down over the last two years is just the proliferation of three and four wide receiver sets along with a single or a double back that maybe that leaves a tight end only in line to block. Maybe that leaves a tight end on the sidelines where they don't have any tight ends in the formation. 
you know, could it be attributable to offensive lines not being as good as they used to be, which means your move tight end isn't on the field anymore. You have your blocking tight end in line to help stave off some of the some of the pass rush. I mean, it's it, I think it's a confluence of factors here. Again, we don't know exactly what it is for each offense, but we could probably go back and measure it to some degree, whether it's availability of a player, whether it's the, the offensive line being bad. Maybe it's just I mean, you're right, Pat, you're right. I think it could just be variance. For all intents and purposes, I mean, it's just maybe the tight ends just not getting targeted in the red zone as much as they were. Maybe they're just not catching the passes, you know, and maybe it's, we don't have tight ends in in these totally cherry offensive situations that we may have had three or four years ago where, you know, we had we had Gronk, we had Jimmy Graham, we had Tony Gonzalez, we had Jason Witten in his prime. We had all of these elite tight ends, generational tight ends in these elite generational situations that they were able to take advantage of and leverage. And now we don't necessarily have that, but in a couple spots. And even then it's not leveraged on a week to week basis as we see with Travis Kelsey. So, you know, is it, is it ebb and flow at the position? Yeah, probably. Are there other factors contributing? Yeah, probably. But I don't know if we will necessarily know until we can get this five or six years behind us and make a better assessment of what happened. Josh, before we let you go, I wanted to hit you up with just a few somewhat rapid-fire questions, although take as much time as you'd like with, with your answer. Um, looking at the Titans, they they went again yesterday, but they just they seem to be a terrible team to be 7-4. and four. Is this the worst coached 7-4 and four team that you can remember, or are we too high on players like Marcus Mariota, Corey Davis, Derrick Henry, and then some of their peripheral pieces who also seem – uh, to be somewhat trendy, you know, potential exciting types of players. I think I think it's a bit of both with the Titans. I do think they are terribly coached, and I can remember when they hired Mike Malarkey to be the head coach. That you know, in general, the the Twitter sphere and, and probably outside of that thought that that was a terrible hire because they remembered his stint with Pittsburgh and how bad that was. They remembered his stint with Jacksonville and how bad that was. And so the thought is, ooh. This guy stunk out loud in two places. He's not innovative. What makes you think that we'll work here with all of these very athletic, very dynamic pieces that they need an innovative mind to leverage them? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, I think they're terribly coached. I, I don't know if we necessarily overvalue the players here. I think they've done a fantastic job of drafting, but, you know, drafting is only part of the equation. Once you draft them, you have to develop them further. You have to leverage them in a scheme against the, you know, defenses obviously that are just as athletic and just as dynamic in their playmaking. So if, if you have these highly athletic players and they're unable to achieve anything better than mediocrity, then at some point, I think you have to point to leadership as an issue and whether that's leadership in developing player or leadership in encouraging the player or both, you know, I, I, to me, that's where the finger squarely points at this point in Tennessee. How about Carson Wentz and Jerry Goff? They Wentz started last year, first month, looked like a great early pick, and then sort of fell apart. Goff obviously train wrecked from the beginning. And now in their second seasons, they look phenomenal. Are they ready to face each other in a theoretical NFC championship game this year? I, I That's an interesting question. I don't know. I think both of these teams are – especially the Rams. I think the Rams, I don't want to say fraudulent. I think they're fabricated. And we saw a little bit of glimpse behind the curtain today on Twitter when when um, the post going around about, 
uh, Sean McVay talking in Jared Goff's ear all the way up to the 15 second mark, basically calling the play after the defense deployed its set. And granted, that's within the rules. It's brilliant. And you wonder why aren't offenses doing this all the time? And again, it kind of harkens back to the good old boy system in the NFL where they hire retreads that do things the same old way all the time. And you get, a, you know, kind of some fresh blood in there like McVay that's leveraging the rules to his advantage. And it's good to see. Now, is that ready to step onto an NFC championship stage with Jared Goff? I don't think so. I, I do think the, the offense is fabricated. We saw in Minnesota um, the week before last that that offense can be completely derailed uh, in, in the right situation. I'm pretty sure that the Rams will have to go on the road in the playoffs, and I think that's probably where they'll meet their downfall. I, and I think it'll be before they get to Philadelphia. So on the other hand, Carson Wentz, I mean, we, I was a very, very harsh Wentz critic last year and even through this offseason. And I think I had a lot of – I have a lot of support in that regard and that I can back it up with data that he was bad. He was just plain bad last year. And he was not that, and honestly, I, my opinion is he's not that great in college. He was very limited in college, and that followed through into his rookie season. What we didn't see behind the curtains is his work ethic, what he was doing behind the scenes, hiring private coaching, working with his coach, Doug Peterson, to improve. And then obviously he has a very smart coach that understands Wentz's limitations and understands his strengths and leverages those. And again, you have Peterson who is a, a fresh mind, relatively fresh mind in the NFL, has played quarterback himself in the pros and is leveraging the rules to his advantage. So can these two guys face on the NFC championship? I think Philly has the best chance. I think they have the better defense. I think they're a better rounded team. I don't think they rely on fabrication quite as much as the Rams do. Um, but again, it's um, football's a funny game. It's it, There's a lot of variance involved, and it's very possible those guys could be facing each other and New Orleans be sitting at home. But I, I, I think the teams will be hard-pressed to beat New Orleans once we get into January. All right, so we've talked about some good teams with good coaching, some good teams with bad coaching. Uh, there's some bad teams with bad coaching, like the Bears, that uh, are seem to be sticking with their coach. Do you think they should have fired John Fox uh, this week after after their performance in Philadelphia? Uh, basically, why is John Fox still head coach? Yeah, I think I think for the Bears, they are so far removed from relevancy at this point that it doesn't make sense to fire their coach because I don't see I don't see the benefit at this point of firing John Fox until the end of the season. I mean, at this point, I think you should rely on kind of the day-to-day consistency that he provides. I'm sure he's a, a, a good mentor to these young men that play for him, you know, from, from a life perspective, from a, you know, outside of football perspective, he, I think he's a good role model in that regard. And just because he's a bad game day coach, because he, he does things that are really negative EV all the time, doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad guy to have around these young men. So I would wait until after the season to fire him. Um, but I would be talking to other people at this point if I'm the Bears, and I think they probably are if they intend to fire him. I think they probably have a short list in mind of of who they're going to go after. And so as soon as the season's over, I mean, like probably, you know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock on week 17 that Sunday once games wrap up, I mean, to me it's, John, I need you to go clean your office. We're going to go a different direction this season and, and go ahead and have your new guy get ready to come in and take the reins. Obviously, unless he's, you know, coordinating an offense for a team that's in the playoffs. For the final question, we have Cam Newton, obviously a 
very good quarterback has had good results in terms of wins and losses. But when I think about my ranking of Christian McCaffrey, the one thing that really gives me pause <laughs> is watching these games and seeing Newton consistently miss McCaffrey on a two yard pass by about five yards. Is it demoralizing for the rest of the offense at all to see Newton throw passes like that? And then when he scores a rushing touchdown, celebrate like he's the greatest player in NFL history. Sean, is this is this question just does, do the Panthers players feel as bad as I do about their waste of, of Christian McCaffrey? <laughs> Definitely multi-layered in that direction. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you bring up a really interesting point. I mean, does it does it breed contempt in, in, among the team? I, I absolutely think it does. Now, you know, we assume that these players, the, the, as well as they're being paid, they're expected to be professionals. Can they package that? for when they're not on the field for, you know, after the game and when they get home, can they, you know, can they kind of let that out there? <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know if that's necessarily possible. I mean, these guys are obviously, they're very competitive. They want to win. And you could probably, I, I haven't watched the Panthers all that closely this season, but I'm sure you can see it in their body language from time to time. And probably McCaffrey's most of all, when, you know, you are wide open, you've done what you're supposed to do on the play. And the guy that's supposed to lead your offense and be the leader of the team completely just muffs the play, just destroys the entire intent of the play because he doesn't have the skill set or he doesn't have um, the focus to do what he needs to do. And then obviously he goes off and runs for a touchdown and preens for the camera because that's that's just how he is. Um, it's I, I think a lot of Carolina's problem is in who coordinates the offense. Again, it's um, – I struggle with I struggle with the NFL in that they retain coaches for so long and move them from city to city to city. And we're kind of seeing that a little bit with Marty Morningweg tonight, that retreads continue to service in the NFL and bog down their teams. And teams are just they're too scared, it, it appears, to try something new to freshen talent. And the teams that have freshened the talent in their leadership ranks are thriving right now. Obviously, I mean, we just talked about the Rams. We talked about Philadelphia. I mean, those are two teams that did something different in their leadership structure, and they're completely thriving. And why more teams don't look at that and take that opportunity, I, I just – I really don't understand it. But with with Carolina, it's um, – I'm sure that – I'm sure the players get, get demoralized during the game. Um, I can't tell whether it affects the performance, but I do think that if they were to remove Mike Shula immediately and put – anybody in there calling plays, even if it's the guy that Denny Green dug up out of, you know, a junkyard back in 2006, whenever year it was that they brought him back to the Raiders, that, you know, even that guy could probably do a little bit better job calling plays and scheming up a creative offense than Mike Shula does. All right, Josh. Well, thanks so much again for for joining us tonight. This has been great. Uh, Everyone, make sure to check Josh out on Twitter, uh, at FantasyADHD. Check out his site, fantasyadhd.com. Some really fantastic apps there. Check out the apps at Rotoviz, of course, and check out the apps at Roto Grinders that Josh does as well. Terrific stuff. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Pat, Sean, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for letting me come and rant a little bit. That's it's a, a hobby of mine, ranting. So <laughs> I appreciate you guys giving me give me a soundboard and letting me do my thing. Thank you for listening to Rotoviz Radio, the flagship Rotoviz podcast. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. 
Contact us via email, rotavizradio at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at rotavizradio. And remember, you can always support the pod by subscribing to Rotoviz at a 30% discount through the Rotoviz Radio homepage, rotaviz.com slash radio. Say Metro by T-Mobile, got the best deal in wireless, and it's all for you, all for me. Just switch quickly, because Metro has two lines for 80, and two Samsung Galaxy J7 Star phones for free, plus Amazon Prime included. That's the way wireless should be, only at Metro. Plus sales tax and activation fee. $50 plus rate plan required. Not valid for numbers currently on T-Mobile Network or on Metro in past 90 days. Offer subject to change. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Amazon Prime has a $12.99 per month value. Restrictions apply. See store for details and terms and conditions. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.